Thank you for holding. Your conference will begin in two minutes. Thank you for your patience. to the first quarter 2017 Phillips 66 earnings conference call. My name is Krista and I will be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I now will turn the call over to Jeff Dieter, Vice President, Investor Relations. Jeff, you may begin. Good morning and welcome to the Phillips 66 first quarter earnings conference call. Participants on today's call will include Greg Garland, Chairman and CEO, Tim Taylor, President, and Kevin Mitchell, Executive Vice President and CFO. The presentation material we will be using during the call today can be found on the Phillips 66 website, along with supplemental financial and operating information. Slide two contains our safe harbor statement. It is a reminder that we will be making forward-looking statements during the presentation and our question and answer session. Actual results may differ materially from today's comments. Factors that could cause actual results to differ are included here as well as in our SEC filings. With that, I'll turn the call over to Greg Garland for some opening comments. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Before we get started, I'd like to welcome Jeff Dieter to the Phillips 66 team. Jeff, we're really glad that you're with us today. So during the quarter, we successfully completed several major turnarounds and refining in chemicals. This represents our highest level of turnaround activity in a quarter since the formation of our company. Our first quarter earnings largely reflect the impact of this downtime. 
but also highlight the benefit of our diversified and integrated portfolio. Our chemicals business had solid results on strong demand and improved margins. We continue to successfully execute our midstream growth program. Several of the largest projects we've been investing in over the last few years have now been completed or are almost complete. The LPG export terminal at Freeport, Texas, which is part of our Sweeney Hub complex, was completed late last year. The facility operated to design capacity in the first quarter, and we're supplying customers in Europe, Latin America, and Asia. We're currently evaluating opportunities to build additional fractionation capacity at Sweeney and other Gulf Coast locations, and we expect to reach FID later this year. Construction on the Dakota Access EPCOP pipelines is complete. Line fill is nearly finished, and we expect these pipelines to begin delivering Bakken crude to the Midwest and the Gulf Coast by June. Phillips 66 has a 25% interest in both of these lines. Our Beaumont terminal expansion is ongoing. Recently, we added 2 million barrels of contracted crude storage. This morning, we FID'd additional five crude tanks, which will add another 2 million barrels of contracted crude storage by 2018. By mid-year, we expect to add another 1.2 million barrels of product storage. As crude and product exports grow, Beaumont is well positioned to generate additional earnings. Phillips 66 Partners remains an important part of our midstream growth strategy. We expect partners to reach its growth goal of $1.1 billion in run rate EBITDA by the end of 2018. In addition to drop-downs to the partnership, PSXP is pursuing a number of organic growth initiatives. Progress continues on Partners Bayou Bridge JV Pipeline, which currently runs from our Beaumont Terminal to Lake Charles, Louisiana. The line is also being extended from Lake Charles to St. James. Earlier today, the development of a new isomerization unit was announced by Phillips 66 Partners. This project will provide fee-based earnings to the partnership and will increase the Lake Charles refinery's production of higher-octane gasoline blend components. DCP Midstream simplified its corporate structure in January. The new structure better positions DCP for growth and improved capital allocation. DCP has successfully reduced its operating costs and returned to profitability. We expect to receive distributions from DCP in the second quarter. In chemicals, CP Chem is advancing the U.S. Gulf Coast Petrochemicals Project. The polyethylene units are on track to complete mid-year, and the ethane cracker in the fourth quarter of 2017. We expect CP Chem distributions to improve significantly with earnings contributions from these assets and reduced capital spending once a project is completed. In refining, we're pursuing high return, quick payout projects. At the Billings Refinery, we're increasing heavy crude processing capability to 100%. This project is expected to be finished later this quarter. At Bayway and Wood River Refineries, we're modernizing FCC units to increase clean product yield. Both of these projects are expected to complete in the first half of 2018. We continue to remain, maintain our commitment to our distributions to our shareholders. During the first quarter, we returned over $600 million to shareholders in the form of dividends and share buybacks. We remain committed to our strategy, executing our growth plans, enhancing returns, and rewarding our shareholders. The projects we have coming in line, they're well positioned to increase cash flow. 
We believe our integrated downstream portfolio remains a differentiating factor that provides upside in a rising U.S. production environment. Before I turn the call over to Kevin to review the financial results, I'd just like to note that Monday will be our fifth year anniversary as a company. I want to thank all of our employees, contractors, business partners, the communities where we live and work, as well as the owners of our company and our board, who have all enabled us to accomplish so much in these first five years. Kevin? Thanks, Greg. Good morning. Starting on slide four, first quarter earnings were $535 million. We had two special items that netted to a benefit of $241 million. In refining, we recognized a $261 million gain from the consolidation of the Mary Sweeney LP coking venture following the resolution of an ownership dispute. And in chemicals, we had a $20 million charge related to an impairment of a CPCAM joint venture. After removing these items, adjusted earnings were $294 million, or 56 cents per share. Cash from operations for the quarter was negative $549 million. This includes a negative $1.3 billion working capital impact. Excluding working capital, cash from operations was $748 million. Capital spending for the quarter was $470 million, with approximately $270 million spent on growth. Distributions to shareholders in the first quarter totaled $611 million, including $326 million in dividends and $285 million in share repurchases. We finished the quarter with a net debt-to-capital ratio of 27%. Our adjusted effective income tax rate was 21%, reflecting a higher-than-typical proportion of earnings from lower tax jurisdictions. Slide 5 compares first quarter and fourth quarter adjusted earnings by segment. Quarter-over-quarter adjusted earnings increased by $211 million, driven by improvements across all of our operating segments. Slide 6 shows our midstream results. After removing non-controlling interest of $35 million, midstream's first quarter adjusted earnings were $77 million, $44 million higher than the fourth quarter. Transportation adjusted earnings for the quarter were $56 million, up $12 million from the prior quarter, driven primarily by lower seasonal maintenance spend and increased equity earnings. In NGL, we had adjusted earnings of $4 million. This represented a $9 million increase and was largely driven by increased earnings from the Sweeney Hub assets. DCP Midstream had adjusted earnings of $17 million in the first quarter. The improvement over the fourth quarter reflects the benefit from hedges and lower operating costs, partially offset by reduced volumes. Turning to chemicals on slide 7. First quarter adjusted earnings for the segment were $201 million, $77 million higher than in the fourth quarter. In olefins and polyolefins, adjusted earnings increased by $56 million, primarily due to improved margins, higher volumes driven by strong polyethylene demand, and lower operating costs. Global O&P utilization was 89%, 3% higher than the prior quarter. Both periods were impacted by significant turnaround activity. Adjusted earnings for SANS increased by $21 million due to higher margins and a gain on CPCAM's sale of its K-Resin business. In refining, crude utilization was 84% for the quarter, comparable with our low 80s guidance. Pre-tax turnaround costs were $299 million. During the quarter, we had major turnarounds at the Ferndale, Bayway, Lake Charles, and Wood River refineries. Clean product yield was 85%. 
down slightly from the previous quarter. Realized margin was $8.55 per barrel, up $2.08 from the fourth quarter. The chart on slide 8 provides a regional view of the change in adjusted earnings. In total, the refining segment had an adjusted loss of $2 million, a $93 million improvement from last quarter. Adjusted earnings in the Atlantic Basin were lower by $148 million. Market cracks decreased by 25% during the first quarter, and capacity utilization fell to 70% from 102% as Bayway completed a major turnaround. This decrease in Atlantic Basin earnings was more than offset by improvements in the other regions, primarily due to improved margin realizations. In the Gulf Coast, market cracks were slightly higher in the first quarter versus the fourth quarter, and capture rates improved to 75% from 45%. The increase in capture is largely due to better clean product differentials. This includes pricing on cyclohexane, propylene, and benzene, as well as the absence of negative impacts from timing of product shipments made last quarter during a rising price environment. The improvement in the West Coast reflects higher volumes due to the completion of fourth quarter turnaround activity at the Los Angeles refinery, along with higher margins. This was partially offset by a major turnaround at the Ferndale refinery this quarter. Slide 9 covers market capture. The 321 market crack for the quarter was $12.24 per barrel, compared to $12.10 in the fourth quarter. A realized margin for the first quarter was $8.55 per barrel, resulting in an overall market capture of 70%, significantly higher than the 53% achieved in the prior quarter. Market capture is impacted in part by the configuration of our refineries. This quarter, we made less gasoline and slightly more distillate than premised in the 321 market crack. Losses from secondary products of $2.66 per barrel were in line with the previous quarter, despite rising crude costs as NGL and fuel oil prices increased. Feedstock Advantage improved realizations by $1.58 per barrel, $0.14 per barrel less than the fourth quarter. The other category mainly includes costs associated with RINs, outgoing freight, product differentials, and inventory impacts. This category improved by $2.49 per barrel from the prior quarter, primarily due to wider clean product differentials and lower rent costs. Let's move to marketing and specialties on slide 10. Adjusted earnings for M&S in the first quarter were $141 million, similar to the fourth quarter. In marketing another, the $10 million increase in adjusted earnings was largely due to higher realized margins despite negative impacts from lower RIN prices. Higher margins were partially offset by lower volumes. Specialties adjusted earnings decreased by $9 million, primarily due to turnaround activity at the XL Paralubes joint venture, which continued into the second quarter. On slide 11, the corporate and other segment had adjusted after-tax net costs of $123 million this quarter, compared to $119 million in the fourth quarter. The increase in net costs reflects higher interest expense and lower capitalized interest due to project startups, partially offset by lower environmental accruals. Slide 12 shows the change in cash during the first quarter. We entered the quarter with $2.7 billion in cash on our balance sheet. Excluding working capital impacts, cash from operations for the first quarter was $748 million. Working capital changes decreased cash flow by $1.3 billion, 
largely due to a seasonal inventory build. We funded $470 million of capital expenditures and investments and distributed over $600 million to shareholders in dividends and share repurchases. We ended the first quarter with 516 million shares outstanding. We had $500 million of other cash flows. This category includes loan repayments from our WRB and DAPL joint ventures. At the end of the quarter, our cash balance was $1.5 billion. This concludes my review of the financial and operational results. Next, I'll cover a few outlook items. In the second quarter, in chemicals, we expect the global O&P utilization rate to be in the mid-90s. In refining, we expect the worldwide crude utilization rate to be in the mid-90s, and the tax turnaround expenses to be between $130 and $160 million. We expect corporate and other costs to come in between $125 and $140 million after tax. With that, we'll now open the line for questions. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star then one on your touch-tone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound key. If you're using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press star then one from your touch-tone phone. Doug Terrison is online with a question. Your line is now open. Good morning, everybody, and congratulations on your strong results. Thanks, Doug. Um, my question is on cash, and specifically, while there was a decline in the position in the quarter, seasonality is normally high in this area for you guys during the first quarter because of turnarounds and other factors, too. So my, my question is, do you expect the normal seasonal pattern of sources and uses of cash to repeat itself again in 2017 for the company? And second, could you specify the factors that affected the change in working capital during the first quarter that you showed on one of the slides, and also just comment on whether or not they're going to recur in coming periods? Yeah, Doug, this is Kevin. I mean, you're right in terms of the, the seasonal comment. I mean, as, as we think about um, cash and working capital, where we ended the quarter at $1.5 billion was actually right in line with our expectations. Our plan had us right at that level um, at the end of the first quarter. We, we typically have the um, seasonal inventory build in the first quarter, and as you, if you look back historically, typically the first quarter is a, a um, use of cash from a working capital standpoint, and the normal kind of um, seasonal trends would apply. But th So this time you had the increase in, work in, in inventory, which dominates that change in working capital, and it's okay. the normal seasonal effect, but also with the heavy maintenance turnaround schedule that we had, you had some additional impact from that. We also had some um, line fill, DAPL line fill contributed to that also. And then the other component from a working capital standpoint, because of the uh, extent of the downtime, which was weighted towards the end of the first quarter, so March was our highest downtime month, you actually had a bit of a rundown in payables over the course of the um, first quarter, and so you expect that to, to come back. And actually, as we, as we look at it, as of yesterday, sort of end of April, on an apples-to-apples basis, our cash balance is sitting at just over $2 billion. So you've already seen some of that come back. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say you can absolutely assume that the entire $1.3 billion comes back over the course of the year, but certainly some of it does. Okay, thanks a lot. That's very clear. 
is Justin Jenkins with Raymond James online with a question. Your line is open. Great, thanks. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I guess I got a couple on the midstream front. Greg, you mentioned in your remarks that we've got a lot of assets at PSX that have recently reached completion or are about to, and all those look pretty attractive to move into PSXP and would also presumably have a high tax basis, making it attractive for PSX as well. So I guess just from a high level, would those assets make sense as the next candidates for drop? And then would it also be reasonable to assume that a full quarter or two of, of operational data is maybe the hurdle before dropdowns? Well, well, we like those assets, obviously, and they're certainly good candidates to drop at some point in time. We, we typically don't give guidance on what assets are coming next in terms of a drop, but but certainly, um, it's always a plan. Those assets someday will end up at PSXP in terms of the midstream assets. Okay, great. That's helpful. And then on the rodeo project proposed in the quarter, can, can we get a sense maybe on, on how that's progressing and, and maybe the strategy on building those type of, of upstream-facing assets, whether at PSX or PSXP, versus maybe looking at third-party M&A opportunities? Yeah, this is Tim Taylor. Uh, you know, rodeo, rodeo project is in the Permian. And, you know, it's really a, a gathering system that, that we look at. So we're already there um, operating in that with, with pipeline operations. So it's a nice way to extend what we, what we have there. But it's also, as everyone knows, a very active basin now in terms of additional production. So, uh, you know, we're in those discussions with producers. And, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity with that. And that will develop here over the next few months and to see if it's a go-forward uh, investment for us. Uh, and so I think it's just part of our extension of continuing to look for organic projects where we can in the growth basins or in the growth markets to uh, to build our presence there. Great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the call. Thank you. And we have Phil Gresh with J.P. Morgan online with a question. Your line is open. Hey there. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, first question, just on the refining performance in the quarter. Kevin, you talked about uh, the other bucket, um, which if I look at a couple of the regions, Atlantic Basin, Gulf Coast, is actually is a positive contributor. Typically, there's some amount of, of negative contribution there, and you had mentioned RINs. So I was just wondering if actually RINs uh, was a positive in the quarter potentially. Uh, and no. One of your peers did, did mention this, so I was curious. Yeah, no, 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 definitely not. RINs are still a, a – um, reduction to the realized margin, it's just a less of a reduction with the RINs prices coming down over the period. Um, the other, the, but it is part of the improvement, the relative improvement quarter over quarter. And then the, the bigger item is, are the uh, clean product differentials that I talked about, some of the non-gasoline distillate clean products, um, and also the absence of the timing effects on, on those product shipments from last quarter. Right. Okay. Um, Second question is just um, you're going to be uh, running around 95% utilization in the second quarter, up from 84% in the first quarter. Um, we're seeing several other companies in the industry talk similarly. Uh, so, Greg, I'm just wondering how you feel about the, the outlook uh, for refining margins as we move into the summer here. We're already starting to see built in, in product inventories, and it just seems like these runs numbers are quite high. So curious what your view is. Yeah, I think we've always said that we, we felt like 2017 was going to look a lot like 2016, particularly in the front half of the year. And we, we always had hope that the, the back half might clear and we'd see the opportunity for some margin improvement. 
Uh, I think you should also expect, though, we, you, we've had significant turnaround activity in the industry, and we always come up and everyone runs better. Uh, assets are clean, uh, they're ready to go, and people are going to run. So I think the, the, that coupled with, you know, certainly through the first quarter and into early April uh, on the demand side, it, it looks flattish to us at best on gasoline demand. Maybe digital demand is going to be a little better. So I, I would say those those are um, concerns for us as we think in the back half of the year. And I think, Jeff, if you want to comment a little bit on the economy, I think we're getting more positive in the economy as we think about the, the back half of the year, maybe excluding the first quarter GDP results that came out this morning. Yeah, GDP results were a little bit lower uh, than the consensus, but there were a number of items worth highlighting. U.S. Uh, consumer confidence uh, was an, was very high. Uh, the April number was the second highest since 2001. When you, you look at the U.S. manufacturing PMI statistics, they're at the high end of the uh, five-year range. Business investment up 9% year-on-year. So some of the uh, factors that drive gasoline demand and diesel demand have been strong domestically, uh, and PMIs have been improving internationally uh, across Europe and Asia as well. Yes, yeah, so I think our view, and, and same thing in the petrochemicals business, we're seeing good solid demand really globally in the petrochemicals business. So you kind of factor in, we may actually have better economic conditions in 17 versus 16, and that, that should be a positive direction for us. And you wanted to comment, Tim. Yeah, I, I just think on the demand side, you know, it's flattish. Our, our, our same side store sales on when we look at the, the retail side of our business, the market side, we were down about half a percent in the first quarter. You know, I think we're really what you have to see to balance the market is you've got to see some uptick now in the summer driving season, and you've got to you've got to balance with some exports. And we've seen good demand there. Um, but I think those are two key port, uh, parts of how you get the demand to catch up with the supply piece, and that's going to be the critical variables that we watch going forward. Okay, thanks. Also, an interest. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just might mention the emphasis on on exports as well. We had a very strong fourth quarter, 175,000 barrels a day of product exports. Uh, the first quarter number was 144,000 barrels a day, a little bit softer due to some maintenance at Alliance, which is one of our major export facilities. But also, um, we're positioning the portfolio for continued export growth at Beaumont, where we have 400,000 barrels a day going to 600,000 barrels a day of, of crude and product export capacity. Right. Okay. And this last question is just on the capital spending. Um, the first quarter number was actually quite low, and especially uh, on midstream, we haven't seen a number this low in a while. So just curious how you're expecting that to progress. Do you expect the midstream spend to start ramping up, or, or should we be thinking maybe uh, that the guidance uh, has some room to come down? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't analyze that first quarter number, certainly. Uh, it's clear, you know, we've finished the heavy lifting around the Sweeney Hub project. And uh, I think purposely as we thought about the 2017 capital budget, we built in quite a bit of flexibility. You know, we had some concern over, over margins and cash generation in, in 2017, so we left ourselves a, a lot of flexibility this year uh, to adjust CapEx if, if needed. But I, I, I do think that, you know, we're still guiding to the 2-7 today. You know, mid-year we'll give you an update on that. But we have a lot, we have a lot of good opportunities, I think, you know, 
you think about uh, FID and a frac, but we've always thought that would be the back half of the year. And so I think you'll see things pick up, Phil. Okay, thanks for that, Greg. You bet. Ed Westlake is online with a question. With Credit Suisse, your line is open. Yeah, good morning. Um, uh, thanks for your time this morning. Just on um, the chemicals, um, obviously one of the big, big drivers of the improvement in cash flow as you look into 2018 is going to be not spending on the cracker and, and getting your share of the, the EBITDA and, and then distributions. Maybe just um, a reminder of just sort of the latest thoughts on CapEx in 17 and then 18 at, the, at CPCAM, and then, and then a question on um, how the processes of distributions, presumably there'll be a board meeting at some point early next year, and if the crack is up and running, you'll decide to increase distributions. Maybe some color there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, just a couple. I mean, so CPCAM's budget this year is uh, $1.375 billion, and I think they're probably going to be right on top of that number it looks yeah. like to us at this point in time. Uh, but that's down quite a bit, about $600 million from some last year. So certainly we're finishing up the polyethylene units. You know, the cracker will be towards the end of the year as we finish that up. Um, and then so, uh, you know, that should generate between $1.2 and $1.4 billion mid-cycle at the CPCAM level. So we're anxious to to see that. I mean, the, the policy CPCAM is, is essentially to distribute the cash. I mean, we, we pay all the expenses. Uh, but then most of the cash gets distributed. I think the, I mean, the question a lot of people have is when's the second cracker coming? And I, I suspect that we, we would not FID uh, the second cracker in 2018. It could be towards the end, but or 2019 is what we're looking at right now. So I think that we're, our expectation is we'll have a full year of, of 2018 uh, cash flow out of the new project. And Tim, you may want to comment on, on timing. Yeah, so uh, as we look at the Gulf Coast project, as Greg alluded to in his comments, the polyethylene unit completes, you know, this summer. We should start to see the earnings impact on those derivatives in the, in the third and fourth quarters. Got to get through the startup piece of that. And then the cracker completing late in the year in the fourth quarter, we'll really see the earnings for the full stream really come on uh, in the first half of 18 to hit that run rate EBITDA. But uh, I think, you know, we've got a very strong possibility that we've got much increased cash flow that translates back to distributions to the owners. Yeah, Ed, this is Kevin. I would just add, we are expecting distributions from CPCAM this year. Um, we haven't had discretionary distributions in a little while, but we are anticipating some of that starting this year. Obviously, that will increase quite a bit next, next year with the combination of capital coming down and the EBITDA from the new project. And then one for Tim, just on um, uh, always good color on the um, the NGL, ARV, and exports. Um, you know, maybe we just need higher prices, but it does feel like there's going to be a wall of, of NGLs coming, and so there should be some excess return from the infrastructure you're putting in. But uh, any comment on the, the current market conditions would be helpful. Yeah, um, well, it's been interesting. In the first quarter, the LPG um, markets in general, whether it be ethane, propane, butane, have really entered into the cracking slate. So fairly, uh, you know, some variability during the quarter in, in each of those components being favored. So that kind of added some demand on the propane butane side. We've continued to export very heavily as an industry, almost a million barrels a day uh, of propane. And so, you know, we've seen inventories fall. And so I think the demand side has been really strong. The, the challenge is we need more supply from, from our perspective to really load that. 
but the high propane prices narrowed the ARB into the various markets, so that continues. But we need to see more volume supply side to really widen that and, and a little bit higher crude price. So I think as we look forward, you know, we think uh, NGLs will, will continue to come on stream based on what we see, uh, building into 18, but we think in front of that in 17, we would expect the international ARB to be a bit narrower until we get that piece sorted out. But overall, uh, we're seeing a lot of, of uh, production opportunity developing, and that's why it still gives us a very uh, bullish case, we believe, long-term on the NGL supply, chemicals production here, as well as exports out of the U.S. Very helpful. Thank you. Paul Chang with Barclays is online with a question. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Good morning. Oh, good. Morning. Good afternoon from New York. Um, hey, Paul. That's great. Uh, Tim, you, you, oh, great that you mentioned that the, um, the new ethane cracker, once that is fully operational, 1.2 to 1.4 billion EBITDA mid-cycle. How you define as mid-cycle? Or that if you can tell us maybe the other way is that uh, if you're based on first quarter market condition, what that uh, EBITDA uh, contribution may look like? You know, Paul, just, yeah, so that, that cracker is about 3.3 billion pounds a year of ethylene. And so very simply, if you think that the first quarter cash margins in that low 30 cent per pound range, so when you multiply that out, you get about a billion dollars at today's conditions, maybe slightly more. Uh, and as we think longer term, we think with continued low ethane pricing, improvement, strengthening crude, that that comes up another, you know, into the mid-cycle range in the mid-30s, which drives the 1.2 to 1.4. So based on the first quarter, is about a billion dollar. And that's yeah, I, I would the say, polyethylene? Yes, that's the full chain. So that's polyethylene okay. plus the ethylene. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, Tim, do you have uh, maybe some number can share about the LPG expert terminal and the NGL? Fascinator, what's their one way in the first quarter, and what kind of EBITDA contribution they may be? So the um, the LPG export terminal, uh, you know, we ran it, you know, eight cargos a month is kind of what we define as capacity. We hit that, but overall utilization was in the 90% range, a little bit higher. On the fractionator, uh, we were still running in the uh, the mid 80s, 80,000 barrels a day and 100,000 barrels a day, but we've just recently been successful optimizing that unit and we're up to a little bit of right around 100,000 barrels a day at capacity. So, you know, I think we continue to find ways to improve and optimize around the asset. I think the run rate EBITDA, you know, I'd still say, you know, very dependent on the ARB, but, you know, we're, we're somewhere in the range. If you look at the total, we're probably still in the range of around 200 million uh, for the year. I would say in these current market conditions, just because the, the differentials between the U.S. and Asia and Europe are, are expected to remain pretty narrow. Mm -hmm. um, Kevin, that uh, first quarter turnaround costs end up to be lower than your previous guidance. Uh, does it mean that uh, for the full year we should correspondingly assume it's going to be lower by the same amount, or that uh, the full year turnaround costs will still be about the same? Yeah. Paul, we haven't we haven't revised the full year guidance number, um, but it probably pushes you more to the lower end. We gave a, a pretty big range, 625 to 675 million, 
And so realistically, it probably pushes you more to the lower end of that range. Or maybe, let me ask you in this way. I mean, the lower in uh, the first quarter turnaround call is just because you guys have been doing a better job and come in uh, below the budget and uh, maybe that even a little bit faster, not because that you have pushed some of the activity uh, into the other quarters, right? Right. right. So that's, everything that's right. equal that if you don't have cost overrun in the remainder of the year, that we should see the uh, same amount of that being come down in the full year, right. in theory. Right. Uh, and a final question, that uh, team for Depot, uh with that up and running, that's the pipeline operation will in any shape or form change the way how you uh, source your uh, refinery crew or how you run your refinery? Or that uh, that doesn't really impact you because that uh, is not going all the way to uh, the center side yet? I, I didn't catch the last part of that, Paul, not going all the way. To Louisiana, that since that oh. was your refinery in the Gulf Coast is in Louisiana. Yeah, well, you know, you, we've seen recently the disruption in heavy Canadian crude has put a call on the Bakken crude in the northern tier. So I think, you know, as we as we think about DAPL startup, you know, we see pretty good pull on, on, on uh, that supply generally, certainly for, for some of our refining operation that remains a very viable supply. You bring it to the Gulf Coast, you get the Beaumont. Um, you know, we got the opportunity to get to Lake Charles. We're working on an extension to St. James. So I think then you now see light crude from North Dakota landing in the Gulf Coast, and, and you're going to see some rebalancing. So I think as we look at it, you know, it all depends on the yield and the pricing, but we think Bakken will be an attractive supply crude within our system, uh, particularly in Louisiana and in Wood River and, and some of our mid-con uh, refineries. So, you know, I think that from from our standpoint, it's always good to have that extra option. And you know, in the end, I think it helps rebalance the uh, the light sweet crudes on the Gulf Coast. But have you made any changes to your operation yet, or not really? No. Um, when we look at the Bakken, it you know, it's it's just really nothing required much there from a difference from what we run traditionally in a light crude unit. Okay. Thank you. Neil Maida with Goldman Sachs is online with a question. Your line is open. Hey, guys, and Jeff, congratulations on the new role. It's great to have you on the other side. Uh, a couple Thanks, questions Neil. here. Uh, a couple questions on, on uh, the crude side of the equation. I guess the first is related to the OPEC cut um, and the potential extension later in May and uh, your thoughts on the impact um, of the reduction in OPEC supply on the light heavy and, and the medium sour sour barrels uh, for your coastal refiners. Yeah, on, on the OPEC, uh, you know, we're still seeing evidence of, of good compliance um, from from the standpoint of OPEC reducing that. It certainly impacted the supply of medium and heavy sour crudes, and then you've had the Canadian uh, crude outage as well. So that alone has kind of bit up, if you will, the price of, of the heavy medium sours. And then you put increased production of light crudes in the U.S. on top of that, and, and you've seen that narrow. So our expectation is that this tightness lasts until the Canadian crude comes back on, widens out a bit. But depending on how much OPEC continues with the cut, that could continue to keep that differential tighter, but maybe widening a bit with Canadian supply coming back. 
But I think generally, you know, our view is it's still going to remain tighter than what it has been, say, for the last several years, just because of the increased light and decreased supply of heavy shower. Uh, that's yeah. helpful. Sorry, good. I just said, uh, I think our base case, though, assumes that uh, there's extension on May 25th in terms of the OPEC. Yeah, it seems, seems like we're lining up that way. The, the follow-up is just on U.S. oil production as it continues to tick up. It feels like more of this light crude is coming down to the Gulf Coast. And there's increasing questions we're getting from investors about crude export capacity. And so it's more of a macro question for you guys. If the U.S. continues to grow at, you know, uh, this eight to 900,000 barrel a day annual pace, do you think we have enough crude export capacity on the Gulf Coast to, to clear to clear the basin, and ultimately, uh, does more crude export capacity need to be built? I, th I think there's capacity today. You know, we talked about Beaumont. Greg talked about that going to 600,000 barrels a day. You can always look at additional capacity there as well. Uh, and then you look around the system, and, and, you know, as you start to get beyond that utilization, perhaps there's an opportunity. So I think everyone is looking in the Texas Gulf Coast, Louisiana Gulf Coast, at ways to increase export capability. And so I, our view would be is you may get some shorter-term uh, tightness, but we'll probably find ways to continue to export should that continue to grow. But it's also an infrastructure opportunity like what we're seeing around the Beaumont Terminal. I think our, our view, certainly we've demonstrated we can export as an industry, you know, over a million barrels a day pretty efficiently. I think, you know, as you start approaching that two billion, two million barrel a day mark, though, I think there's going to be additional investment required, is our view. And then the other issues, I think Luke's probably the only facility that could really handle the big ones. Correct. Uh, you know, very large crude carriers. So, and to my knowledge, I don't think there's any work going on there thinking about turning that around, going the other way. So I think there's going to be some additional infrastructure opportunities, you know, around crude exports out of the U.S., you know, in the next couple of years. Um, particularly as we see Permian, Light Suite, you know, ramping up, and all that's going to hit on the Gulf Coast. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Paul Sankey with Wolf Research is online with a question. Your line is open. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to Jeff. Greg, uh, Excellent decision to hire a, a Southside oil analyst. Uh, I hope you're wildly overpaid. Um, if we could uh, ask you a long-term strategy question, Greg. Uh, we know your view on refining. I'm certain that hasn't changed. When we think beyond the major project startup over the next year, where do you think the growth in the business? Where, where, what's your view of, of how you'll generate uh, growth? Is it going to be a second major project that's been alluded to? On the school, thanks. Yeah, I think there'll be certainly opportunities. You're starting to see the, the second wave of crackers being being planned in the U.S. and, and certainly, we we think that the the feedstock will be there for another additional wave of, of crackers, uh, and we want to be in that lineup ultimately with with CP Chem. Uh, I think there'll be um, you know continued opportunity for infrastructure around the crude and the product side. So I think midstream will certainly continue to be a growth vehicle for us, and uh, we'll continue to use the, the master limited partnership to help you know fund that and be a part of that growth, you know as we move forward. I think in, in refining, I think refining is a good business. It's just long term, I just don't see it growing. I, I think that 
you know, uh, we've seen some decent gasoline demand growth over the last two years in the U.S., but ultimately, yeah, I think there's just too many uh, factors that are going to hit you in terms of uh, efficiencies of vehicles, uh, trending in terms of uh, vehicle ownership in the U.S. and how we do that. So I, I actually think demand rolls at some point in the next couple of years in the U.S. and that we're going to need less transportation fuels. So I think exports are a really important part of that, that equation, and you see us and many others gearing up to, to try to handle that as we think a little differently about where our markets are going to be in the future. But really to invest in refining to add capacity still doesn't make sense to us. I think to invest to uh, you know, reduce your cost structure, gain access to advantage uh, crews, and improve some yields, uh, that, those are all good investments that, that we should be making. Uh, and what you'll see us continue to do that around refining. Yeah, that was actually where the thought had started, where you finished, Greg, which is the export story. The U.S. exports on every level are ex way exceeding overall market growth. Where are we, where are we taking market share? Is it, I, I know part of it's poor refining operations in certain parts of the world, but I, I just wonder how we should think about the long-term potential of the market when we must be making someone lose out somewhere, right? Yeah, I, you know, Paul, it's Tim. I, I think when you think about the Gulf Coast with the with the uh, types of assets they are with, with access both inbound, outbound on product and crude uh, is, is going to be really the place where you see the exports. That puts you naturally into Latin America, uh, and you're right, there's been operating issues uh, within that. Uh, but we're also competing directly, if you will, then with the European refineries, and I think with the the cost position that we have, the proximity to the market, uh, you know, I think that's where we continue to see it. And then West Africa, you know, continues to be a developing market and growing that, that the Atlantic Basin and the Gulf Coast will, will continue to, to serve. It's just a question of how much can those grow and where do the, you know, how, who supplies the Asian demand, but we still feels to us like the Middle East and Northeast Asia are still going to be the big suppliers into Asia. That's, that's quite a haul from the U.S. Um, and so I, I think logically the trade patterns start to sort out that the export markets the U.S. will likely largely be in the Atlantic Basin. I think the other thing, just not long-term, Paul, but, but maybe near-term, mid-term, kind of 2018, certainly 2017, we see less refining capacity coming on globally than what we've seen the past few years. I think in our balances, we've, we've about 800 a day coming on in 17 and 18. Yeah, it's just it's interesting because ever since the export trend started, it's been surprising us to the upside, and I'm slightly struggling to know how far it can go. It's obviously outright positive for you guys. Just if I could ask a follow-up, um, you had a bit stronger chemicals results than some of the other results you've seen. Perhaps Dow and Exxon uh, would be what I'm thinking of here. Was there anything particularly differentiated about why your your results were were, were that bit better um, in terms of relative to your competitors, thanks. Uh, I think, you know, first of all, the demand, regardless of the chemicals, we think about aromatics and plastics, it's all been really strong. And so I think we were obviously benefiting, the industry did, uh, from, from a really good market condition. And then it comes back to, Paul, your Advantage feedstock, where we produce in the Middle East, where we produce in North America off of that. So we continue to have an Advantage feedstock. And then fourth quarter results were probably weaker than we would have expected. So the, the quarter on quarter improvement sequentially uh, somewhat reflected, you know, better operating, uh, less less uh, turnaround activity, et cetera. But then fundamentally, margins were better, 
And that's really about how you capture those. You know, you've got to have access to markets, and you like to work on that competitive advantage on the feedstock. And so I think those two showed up. Yeah, we saw a good strength, though, in, in both ethylene and polyethylene. Uh, we saw a good strength coming out of our Middle East joint ventures. Our aromatics business did much better uh, quarter over quarter. And then I think the, the other thing is kind of lost in the conversation maybe is, I mean, we had quite a bit of turnaround activity at CPTM. The unit 33, which is large ethylene cracker at Sweeney, was down for most of the quarter. QKIM 1 was down for turnaround. Amstai had a big turnaround. And so in spite of, you know, pretty substantial turnaround activity at CBM, they had a really solid quarter. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Doug Legay with Bank of America. Merrill Lynch is online with a question. Your line is open. Uh, thank you. Uh, good, uh, good uh, still morning. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Jeff, we're going to hey. miss you around the halls over here. Congratulations <laughs> on your move. Thank you, um, Doug. So I'm not sure if this is for Kevin or Greg, but um, last uh, quarter, I think, Greg, you talked about having 500 to $750 million of discretion in your capital budget. I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap everything together in your comments about, you know, softer refining, or I guess similar to last year, and then the trend, the cash burn trend, and then all the visibility of the drop downs that you have. So there's a lot, of, a lot of flexibility. But then I'm looking at the trend in net debt to cap for your balance sheet. Where, where do you want that balance sheet to be, and how long do you think you can extend the buybacks beyond your commitments to 2017? I think you talked about a couple of billion dollars for this year. Yeah. So, I, you know, maybe maybe start with, with CapEx. I think we, we said 500 to 700 million of, of flexibility in, in capital this year in 2017 that we built in the plan. Obviously, the further you get into the year, the, the harder it is to, to adjust that as we FID projects and, and kind of move forward. And I think we'll continue to look at where, where margins are and, you know, save some ability to adjust capital, certainly through through mid-year, let's say, Doug. Uh, we continue to think about the business on a mid-cycle basis. We should generate, you know, four to $5 billion of cash kind of mid-cycle. We still expect that we'll be able to, to generate, you know, $2 billion out of the, out of the MLP uh, through drops. You know, and with that, we can afford, certainly afford a, a billion dollars of sustaining capital, $1.3 billion, you know, dividend, growing that dividend. Um, and then you think about um, we have a choice. Do we buy shares? Do we reinvest in the business? I think you can certainly afford kind of a, a $1 to $2 billion growth program and a $1 to $2 billion share repurchase program. And so that, that's kind of how we, we, we think about the business. I think the first quarter, certainly, um, I, I would probably wouldn't use the word cash burn in, in terms of that. I think we certainly planned uh, to bring cash down this level, given all the things that we had going on. We did not have a drop in the first quarter. And uh, you certainly, you know, as, you, as we move through 2017, you expect that we're going to, we're going to do something around growing PSXP. You know, we're at 630-ish million dollars run rate EBITDA. We're committing to get to 1.1 billion run rate by the end of 2018. And so, you know, in this year and next year, we're going to have to be moving uh, directionally to do that. So I, I think we can make it all balanced in, in terms of a, you know, strong share repurchase program, strong dividend program, and continue to fund both our, our sustaining and growth capex. So, it, Greg, I guess what I was getting at is looking at the trend, the slide 17 trend, is there a, a, a kind of a range that you you would have us expect your balance sheet to live within over time? Not necessarily this year, but 
longer term, where would we expect your balance sheet to sit through the cycle? Yeah, I think we'll continue to target uh, 20 to 30 uh, percent, you know, debt to cap. And, of course, we're at the upper end of that range today. I think, Kevin, you may want to talk about the, the debt and the restructuring of the debt and the ability to draw from the MLP. But you should expect that we'll pull PSX debt down and that you'll see the debt at PSXP grow. Yeah, I think that's an important point, uh, Doug, that as you – with the growth of the MLP, debt will increase at the MLP. That's going to happen. And our expectation is that over time, and it may not be a perfect match, but generally at the PSX level, debt will come down so that such that on a consolidated basis we're staying about flat. We just recently um, issued about $1.5 billion of short-term debt that is pre-funding for a maturity. We have a $1.5 billion maturity that will be taken care of next week. That is all at the PSX level, but we've structured that debt in such a way that we can move it down into the MLP with as part of a drop-down transaction. And that way, you're kind of part funding the drop by moving debt from the parent company into the MLP. And so we're managing leverage that way. That's, uh, that, that's extremely helpful. I appreciate the full answer, guys. My, my follow-up, maybe it's a, a quick one, maybe not, but uh, um, I wanted to go back to one of the, the, the operating result on refining it, versus our numbers at least, it was particularly strong on the Gulf Coast. And what, what's really behind my question is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand, was there anything unusual about this particular quarter that caused that? And I guess one of the earlier questions was alluding to the RIN issue. So I, I realize, Kevin, you were pretty you know, assertive in your, in your answer to this, but there still seems to be a, de a debate as to whether RINs are in the crack or not. And, I, you know, obviously as it relates to things like moving the point of obligation and so on, I'm just curious if the collapse in RIN prices in Q1 was one of the reasons that refining did a little bit better. And maybe if you've answered the question already, I apologize, but I just wanted to get some clarity around that. Yeah, certainly the, the, the reduction in the RIN cost is a component on the improved. It really shows up in capture, right, the improvement in the capture rate, um, which was pretty significant for us, especially on the Gulf Coast. The other component which I touched on are some of those other clean products, and I don't know how sustainable that is. There's always some degree of benefit from those sort of um, uh, chemical-grade uh, products, um, but you saw a, a spike in the relative margin on those products, and so that was part of it as well. And that benefit was concentrated in the Gulf Coast also. Yeah, maybe Jack, just to comment on the chemicals piece. So that's really um, aromatics out of Alliance, uh, it's solvents and cyclohexane, for instance, out of Sweeney. So we have pretty good exposure on those two refineries into that, and the strength in the chemicals business was evident really across that. So, you know, I, I think as we think about the chemicals business, we, we, we believe that in the aromatics uh, and the solvents businesses that that strength is going to continue. That was really my, my follow-up. Was So that, that has continued so far, both on the RIN side and on the, 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 the derivative petrochemical side. They're both, that's, those two trends have continued to Q2 so far? It, yeah, so far, you know, it's positive. I mean, there is, there's obviously volatility in those chemicals prices, but when you, when you look back at the results across the various value chains in chemicals, it feels like a pretty good pull on, on all those. And then you're right, the RINs prices being lower does impact and improve the capture rate. But I think it's really helpful. Yeah, we continue to believe that the, the RIN is essentially captured in the crack, though. I think it's hard to see sometimes, but I think our, our view is that it is. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think we're kind of in between. We we actually believe it's it's in the crack, that, you know, largely, and we also believe there's an element of that that you see in the market side as well. But largely, it, it to us, it, it, we think it's in the market crack. I appreciate the answers, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you, Doug. Brad Heffern with RBC Capital Markets is online with a question. Your line is open. Hi, everyone. Um, I was wondering if we could dig into the FRAC 2 potential FID that you mentioned for later this year. So obviously FRAC 1 hasn't contributed, I think, the, the EBITDA that you had anticipated. So what gives the confidence to potentially FID it later? Is it just that the economies of scale are so overwhelmingly attractive there? Yeah, you know, I think the next tranche of capital investment will be lower, which is always a good thing from a project standpoint. Uh, second of all, the, the first frack in terms of the frack fees and everything are, is still a very attractive piece. Now we're leveraging lower capex, improve that, and, and now we're able to run closer to that design capacity, which impacts things as well. Um, and for us, a second frack based on, on NGL helps us with our costs around the export terminal and, and some other things. So as we build out more, you actually start to leverage up across that entire hub uh, in terms of incremental EBITDA and in terms of, a, of improved cost. And again, we're still looking long term and saying, you know, this, this is what's needed from an industry standpoint, and it ties back with things like what we're doing with Sand Hills to expand its capacity. We're just seeing increased NGL need eventually for more tracks as that thing comes back into the mix more out of rejection and then that strong demand we see on exports. Okay, understood. And then I guess kind of along the same lines, I was wondering if we could talk about something that hasn't been brought up in a couple of years, I think, which is the condensate splitter. You know, I think in maybe in 14, you know, that was something that seemed like it might make sense for you guys. Um, is there any chance that that project comes back to life? And I, I'm thinking particularly about how light some of these Delaware Basin crudes are. Yeah, well, I think we have to see that supply, but we're watching that. And some of those gravities that we're seeing, you know, around that 50-degree mark, that, that kind of revives that whole discussion, I think, around what exactly would be produced. And so I think that that's one where you've got to see the supply come in be before you would go down that path. But it'll be interesting to see if the Permian comes back in that light fraction, if, if there's sufficient volumes there to really say that the best way to manage that then is a splitter versus blending or, or direct export. So, you know, that's just an option that we're watching. So nothing planned right now, but it, it's one that we are aware of and thinking about. Okay, thanks. Blake Fernandez with Scotia Howard Wheel is online with a question. Your line is open. Folks, good morning. Jeff, I would also congratulate you for uh, escaping the purgatory of uh, energy sell side these days. <laughs> um, I just wanted to revisit a couple of uh, items that came up. Beaumont, um, I realize we're expanding the uh, the storage capacity and the opportunity to export. Is that is that oil export ARB open today? I'm just wondering, are you maxing out your capability there, or is this really a kind of second half of the year event once all the pipelines are up and running and bringing crew down? Well, as an industry, you've, you've certainly seen it, and those differentials drive that. Um, and what we're seeing is, I'll, I'll, I'll frame it this way, we're seeing a lot of interest in the storage to be able to create that option. And so we have done oil exports out of Beaumont already in this year. 
Um, and so I think we look at it and say as long as those new pipelines get connected, the volumes are coming uh, via from North Dakota, the MidCon and, and the permit, et cetera, then, you know, that, that will continue to build. So um, I think right now it's it, you see it very volatile as those differentials come in and out of play. But, you know, longer term, if you believe light oil production is going to increase, we're just, we see that as a continuing need. I think right. just, okay. just, just tactically, I think, uh, once you see that TI Brent get above $2.50 a barrel, people get a lot more interested in exporting. Sure. Okay. Um, Tim, I think earlier you had mentioned Canadian outages, and my question is pretty simple. Just into 2Q, uh, with the outage of Syncrude, are you seeing any meaningful impact on the system, whether it be direct or indirect? Well, we've, we've uh, obviously, uh, the availability has caused us to look at other crudes to run. We've not seen a problem from a supply standpoint. There's plenty of crude options available. But it does cause us to rejigger across some of our system because we are not bringing down as much Canadian crude as, as we were. Um, and so I, I think from our viewpoint, operationally, it's been a minimal impact, but it has created different options for us around the system. Right. So think about it more in terms of capture rate, I suppose, like paying up for crude rather than lack of lack of throughput, I suppose. Yeah. We go back to the economic optimization of what's the best thing to run. Got it. Okay. Thanks. Beth. Thank you. We have now reached the time limit available for questions. I will now turn the call back over to Jeff. Thank you, Krista, and thank all of you for your interest in Phillips 66. If you have additional questions, please call Rosie, CW, or me. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. You may now disconnect.